0: it's important to kind of ground yourself in why you think these things are happening together. Because I think that informs a bit of your view of like, well, is that going to persist? Is some of this going to unwind? Which side is going to unwind? I think it just gives you a bit of like tactical awareness of the space. I think a lot of people just passively kind of consume this data. And I think it's always important to kind of critically kind of assess why those things are happening together.
1: Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders.
2: Welcome or welcome back to another conversation in our series of episodes that focuses on markets and investing from a global macro perspective. This is a series that I not only find incredibly interesting, as well as intellectually challenging, but also very important, given where we are in the global economy and geopolitical cycle. We want to dig deep into the minds of some of the most prominent experts to help us better understand what this new global macro-driven world may look like and we want to explore their perspectives on a host of game-changing issues, and hopefully dig out nuances in their work through meaningful conversations. So please enjoy today's episode, hosted by Harry Krishnan.
3: Thanks very much for the introduction, Niels. My guest today is Rory Johnston, founder of Commodity Context, a physical commodities research firm based in Toronto, Canada. It's a pleasure having you on the show, Rory. Thanks so much for having me, Harry. Uh, can you please tell us a bit about your firm and how you came to start it and what your background might be? Yeah, so prior to starting Commodity
0: Context, which is, as you were noting, kind of a, an oil-focused um, research platform hosted on Substack uh, at commoditycontext.com, uh, before that, I led commodity economic research at Scotiabank here in Toronto, which is a, one of the large Canadian banks, and by most metrics, the most heavily weighted towards resources, kind of Western Canadian energy, Latin American mining, et cetera. Um, so I kind of had my my education in the space there. Um, I left at the beginning of 2020 to uh, start a family, join a family office, kind of you know, take a slightly different tack. Uh, then, you know, pandemic hit. you started hit. a
3: family and you joined a family office at the same I did, time. I did. I did. Double Very double nice. family.
0: <laughs> um, and uh, obviously, at the beginning of that, as I was shifting kind of gears, COVID hit, commodity markets, which had been on a bit of a grind downwards in various ways for the better part of a decade. Um, and I think were, we're fairly depressing for a lot of people in the sector, uh, went completely haywire, you know, first- you know, my phone started ringing off the hook from, you know, old media contacts from my days at Scotia. Like, why is oil negative? What the heck is going on? So I kind of got pulled back into the oil side after, you know, very tentatively trying to leave for a hot second there. And, and yeah, so I kind of got pulled in and, and I kept researching and kind of reading and following the space so I didn't sound like a moron talking to my media contacts. And I was like, why don't I write it down? So I started writing it down. I'm like, why don't I publish this? And that's essentially how Commodity Context started in June of 2021. It went on for a year as a free publication, just to kind of see, you know, what interest in this space was. You know, to my shock and amazement and gratitude, uh, it was a decent, it was a decent uptick, a uh, decent pickup. And so I, you know, last year, mid 2022, I turned on paid and kind of turned this into my full time grind. Um, now, commodity context uh, has over sixteen thousand free subscribers, hundreds of paid subscribers, and uh, generally the focus is I've got three main product verticals. I've got my kind of main bread and butter of thematic uh, pieces. So usually once every two weeks, thematic deep dives on various things. The next one I'm working on is the the air travel and jet fuel demand recovery. I've got monthly data reports a call, called my data decks on global oil balances and then North American oil industry. And then every Friday at the end of business, I publish Oil Context Weekly, which is a uh, kind of a weekend wrap up of what's happened in the market, uh, what's kind of moved in the market and kind of what's driving things and gets you all set up for kind of processing <laughs> the week that just passed and then kind of getting started for Monday.
3: What do people use your research for? Are they PMs? Are they... Um... Uh, You know, generally,
0: yeah, I think I'm quite happy that I have a reasonably broad swath of kind of like like a fairly diverse group of people. I have, you know, you know, your PMs and your analysts in industry, obviously, like a bunch of institutional accounts. I've got a lot of personal. I think there's there's been a huge rise in. Kind of personal trading and family office trading in this period, particularly in oil and gas names. So I think that's been a huge kind of area. Also, policy analysts and kind of government kind of sector. Uh, that's actually, very frankly, where my background is before getting into, you know, before starting to work at a bank. My background is global affairs, policy analysis, et cetera. So I, I really wanted to have a product that kind of could dig deep and kind of become interesting it would be interesting to someone that's an expert in the in the sector but also kind of communicated in a way that doesn't alienate or scare off people who you know it might be one of 10 things they cover so my my hope is to kind of give and I really lead into the the the, the name of the publication I think my my goal isn't to you know yeah, you, know, you know, I'm not a fortune teller. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to pump a view really hard one joke. way or the other. <laughs> exactly. If right. only. Um, but it's really the, the the focus really is on on context and providing kind of a bit of a, you know, a whether it's like a bullshit detector or a bit of a a bit of just a sniff test to some of the narratives that are bouncing around the market because I think right now there are many, many, many narratives that are bouncing yeah. around this oil market uh, and just trying to just add a little bit of concrete, like, you know, there's plenty of stuff we don't know, but what do we know? And I think just kind of trying to ground us in, a, in, in some kind of, you know, uh, you know, proper footings in this market.
3: Is it important to, to have access to what the big energy companies are doing to do, to do your job? Or can you do it purely on a data, data-driven and geopolitical-driven basis? So I think all of this
0: information is is useful. Um, you know do I, I I don't have regular conversations with like the CEOs of Exxon or Chevron, but I you know I, you know you know a lot of that information is presented in their annual and quarterly reports. My focus isn't isn't particularly equities except for what they can tell you on a kind of a, a broader sector level about what what's happening, let's say, to US energy investment or what's happening in the oil sands as a kind of a you know modular kind of sector level. So, so I think it's not essential. Um and I think quite frankly, I think a lot of people over fixate on publicly listed equities because that data is available in there. Um, and I think a lot of the kind of industry uh, data is messy, kind of awfully formatted <laughs> and and I difficult understand. to kind of compare and contrast apples to apples. Uh, so that's really more my focus. And again, I can't, I come from more of a bank economics department view. And I worked with our, you know, FIC groups and our equity research, et cetera. But I left the kind of equity research to the equity research analysts. And I tried to add something a little broader to essentially the, 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 the price assumptions that are going into these, that are going into these models.
3: And, you know, your client, the clients who use your research, let's say the family offices to pick one thing, do they focus more on Trading equities and energy sensitive equities, or do they actually trade the futures directly?
0: To my knowledge, I think most of the people in this space are are, are expressing their view on the commodity through the equities, uh, just because they're the they're the easiest, most liquid to kind of access. Um, but that's that's my understanding. Yes,
3: understood. And now I've tried a new type of uh, show, and I tried it with Marco popic some time ago, and it's basically to make a bunch of statements partly to show that I'm no expert in the space so people can correct me, but also just to say some things that probably aren't true, just to see what an expert like yourself might say. So the format I wanted to choose today, and I hope the viewers don't skewer me for this, it's definitely not Rory's fault. (laughs) If it's anyone's, it's mine, is to make a few statements and then just have you respond. And um, I'll play the role of the straight guy or whatever the phrase is. And uh, we can have a little bit of a back and forth based on these points. Now, the first point go, sort of centers around the unpredictability or the potential unpredictability of energy markets and what you can actually use as sensible or reasonable data inputs to uh, draw some conclusions about where prices may go. Of course, this is never never written in stone. So let me start with point number one. Geopolitical analysis in the energy markets Is basically useless because if something has happened, such as a war in Ukraine or um, a China lockdown, complete lockdown, that's already baked into the price somehow. And the future evolution of politics is inherently unpredictable. So there's no point even bothering about it. Can you respond to that one?
0: Yeah, I would say that, you know, a lot of my focus, again, leaning on this context, you know, keyword here is, you know, I think the geopolitical analysis gives you a sense of kind of a parameterization of the possible. And I think while it's true that, let's say, you know, once Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, as you know, I think the most clear and kind of present example of this in the last year. Yeah, I think like, if if you had a really good you know, bet on that prior, if you really thought that was going to happen. I think it gave you an edge, but I think to your point, like all of this is inherently kind of probabilistic. I think you mentioned that you kind of started this format with Marco, who actually has a really interesting framework around approaching geopolitical risk. Um, And I think that is, that I think is the important thing, is to have a framework, to have kind of a systematized approach to geopolitics. I actually came to the oil space from a geopolitical background. My background is actually not economics. I came from a policy analysis a global affairs and kind of a global security background. So I kind of came from this vantage of everything is geopolitics all the time. And I think as I've been kind of educated in the space, if anything, I think I've almost switched in that balance. And I think that the the challenge and i think the reason that geopolitics often gets a bad rap in this space is it's very it's one very easy to do bad flippant geopolitical analysis because it doesn't lend itself naturally to kind of a framework that you can kind of you know parameterize and track and kind of you know you know iterate on so i do think that like if you have a really good framework and you have a really good track record of approaching things in this way again like like a marco i think that actually does give you an edge because, like right now, like whether it's uh, you know Russia's invasion of Ukraine that we are ca- now currently in, or uh, Chinese uh, kind of government COVID zero policy, etc., I think having uh, a sense or an idea of where that's going to go and a reason for it that you can kind of revisit and add new information to over time, I think gives you a big edge because these these you know narratives fly so wildly week to week, and I think just being able to you know just simply fade. The, the noise sometimes because of a framework, I think gives you a lot of, you know, uh, not not quite I think like a grounding, I think, in reality.
3: So taking China as an example, again, I'm not the expert, you, you would set a base case, which would be a path of reopening or a speed of reopening. And then you take the data points as they come in and make adjustments to that. So you might be looking at air travel or um, any number of things, whatever the politicians are saying interpreting that and so is the is my understanding that if you set a path for the reopening process and you have a price level or a demand level associated with it an incremental demand level then you would adjust that over time as the data comes in is that kind that, of yeah, that, the approach you're taking
0: that, yeah that's exactly right and i think that for something like a kind of a chinese reopening I think, and I think a lot of what we've seen, and I think this is the other thing with um, geopolitical analysis broadly is it doesn't always lend itself nicely to like base case forecasting. I think it it lends itself to like scenario planning. And I think that if you have a couple different kind of core scenarios with a bunch of like very regimented kind of parameters to them, you can kind of tell over time which one you're trending towards. And I think that gives you a sense. So like, let's say, you know, Chinese reopening is an example you know, mid, let's say, you know, September of last year, there was a lot of debate about like, will China ever reopen? Uh, you know, is this going to be a permanent kind of, you know, you know, lock lockdown of the country? Is COVID-02 tied to the the kind of legitimacy or perceived legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party or Xi Jinping himself personally? There were a lot of, I found, you know, and this is like my error. I actually thought I did not think they were going to reopen as quickly as they did. I think that, I, I read a lot of compelling analysis, and I think this is again where geopolitical and kind of political analysis can can kind of lead one astray. That you know the the one of the best comps to COVID zero, a policy that for all intents and purposes from the outside looked insane, that was you know completely bizarre in its in its kind of commitment to kind of keep that level. In, you know, particularly given the fact that, you know, the latest variants were so much more contagious, but less deadly. And, you know, all of these things, you saw, you know, uh, Chinese workers like spraying, you know, disinfectant on roads and like just bizarre kind of theatrical stuff. But the the, the comparison was to uh, the one child policy where that, you know, that policy stayed in the books for so long, so much longer after everyone knew it was, you know, a ticking time bomb or an unsustainable. And I found that compelling. That turned out to be wrong. Um, And I think, you know, there were other people that 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 nailed the call. Um, And I think that if you had a really good view of, you know, what was going on and, and how the Chinese Politburo was discussing and handling these factors, I think it did provide you an edge in at least kind of fading some of the calls that, you know, China would never reopen. I think there was always this kind of like, is it going to be a spring? Is it going to be a summer 2023 kind of situation? And I, but I think that was, that was more of the story. I I expected there to be more, I expected it to be a more gradual process. I expected it to be, you know, month, you know, a couple months of gradual um, uh, sentiment and communication that calms changes from Beijing. But it essentially there were there were protests there was kind of uh there was a kind of a, an upheaval and then all of a sudden you know like like a week later you know they were releasing these points for reopening and then that seemed to just snowball from there so i think that was an example of a call that i personally did not get right um but i think that some did and i think that if you had a if you were a china expert i think that provided you some kind of um grounding and kind of at least kind of fading one side or the other the extreme there
3: so if i'm a an energy money manager if i'm investing in energy is the is the following idea correct i don't know what the fair value of oil is let's say but i do think that i have an out of consensus view on where supply or demand will come in which will affect the price at the margin so assuming that the price is reasonably fair now and i have a different view that i got from rory from commodities context i can use that as a way to lean on a long or short position, simply based on the idea that that is a piece of information that isn't baked into the price that may lead to a, a directional move in my favor. Is that kind of the thinking?
0: Yeah, and I think that you know, you'd know you compare that to whatever your uh, whatever your proxy for consensus, um, consensus-supplied and demand outlook would be. So whether that's the IEA or the EIA or OPEC's you know, monthly reports, you know that outlook for let's say 2023 you know which which outlook do you kind of find yourself trending towards is it are we go are we expecting to see deficits this year are we expecting to see surpluses you know how does that balance and i think even more importantly what underpins those surplus or, or deficits is it a you know i think and i think what you see i just recently did a piece that compared all the major outlooks from the major uh, monthly forecasting agencies and you can see that they have very, you know, a lot of their assumptions are are very similar. Um, and I think that's important because you can say like, okay, these are what I call kind of consensus or, or what I call agency consensus assumptions. You know, U.S. U.S. production will grow, you know, X barrels a year. Chinese demand will grow X barrels a year. OPEC will do this or whatever. But then you start to see like, oh, okay, their differences are in the extent of China's growth or the, expen- the extent of non-Chinese uh, Asian growth. Uh, And I think that is where you start to, then you can start to really pick apart the supply-demand balances. And then you can, I think that only at that point, I think, should you then begin to kind of layer on your own assumptions. Because I think otherwise, you know, I think the challenge sometimes people are like, oh, okay, I think China's going to reopen and it's going to be big. Because of that, I'm really bullish. But a lot of the agencies or consensus already builds in kind of a big Chinese demand boost. So is your assumption bigger than that? Or smaller than that? Or is it just on par? Because if it's just on par, then you actually don't have like an against consensus view. You're actually like right in the middle. And I think it's just, again, I think my focus, and I, I focus a lot on supply and demand and kind of decomposing these balances. And I think it's important to, know, because, you know, there are so many pieces to them, <laughs> so many pieces to these global supply and demand ba- balance models that it's very, very easy to get lost in some of that minutia and kind of lose, you know, the, the forest from the trees. But I think it's important to know like, which particular tree that you are disputing uh, while trying to make this kind of overall macro call.
3: How are these production and demand forecasts made? Uh, What's the methodology? Is it just a simple regression or extrapolation or is it based on surveys? Or What what do these guys actually do? So,
0: I mean, it's mostly based on surveys and that's what's interesting. So the the challenge, I I like to picture like data relevant to the market broken down into kind of three chunks. Um, You've got you know, supply and demand balances, which are lagged, often by usually two to three months. I publish a globe my global oil data deck, uh, which was just published in January, and that
3: covers November balances. So I think just to give you a sense- I could argue that supply is probably stickier than demand. Is that correct? Supply gonna-
0: is, yeah. So I mean, supply is usually easier to kind of peg down Uh, I I wouldn't always say stickier per se, because I think supply itself can be very volatile. But I think that you typically have a better sense of supply and there are fewer revisions to supply after the fact, because generally there are far fewer producers of oil than there are consumers of oil, just, you know, definitionally. So I think when you what you often find is, you know, uh, particularly non OECD demand data often gets revised after the fact, even after it's initially kind of available, like let's say on a you know a two or three month lag, you'll still see revisions to that after the fact. Um, the reason I say, and, and I, just to kind of finish this thought of like the three different chunks, so you've got these like lagged um, supply and demand balance numbers. Um, I think the important thing to know here is like we, the other thing that people over fixate on in this market is the weekly EIA numbers, the weekly petroleum status report published by the EIA. That's something that I think is really, really, really valuable for inventories and I think really, really confusing and distracting for virtually all the rest of the data in the report. And the reason for that is that the actual data, that, like the, the actual accurate data that the EIA publishes is still published on that two to three month lag. Uh, like today we are getting published uh, data from the EIA from what they call the Petroleum Supply Monthly, which is the much more accurate monthly report. Uh, And that will cover November. But we still have weeklies, you know, for supply, demand, you know, imports, exports, refinery runs, et cetera, as of last week. But what you see is those weekly data are imperfect estimates of something that won't be actually kind of nailed down until months later and then will continue to be revised after the fact. And people just overfix it. And the other challenge with the weekly data is everyone just loves to throw a chart up and kind of show weekly data because it, it looks more impressive. It's higher frequency. It looks whatever. Um, more to but sell. Exactly. It's a great. It's a great way to sell. Um, I've I've particularly at the beginning of my career fell victim to this quite frequently. Um, and and what you realize is that the weekly data also isn't back revised, which is a huge challenge because you're compounding errors. And so a great example of this was this past summer. Um, The weekly demand data, or what um, the EIA's uh, weekly petroleum status work calls product supplied, it's essentially a a measure of wholesale demand, essentially uh, supply that disappears from the the kind of observed and surveyed system. Um, What that showed, or what it purported to show, was that demand in the summer of 2022 was lower than the demand in summer 2020, which just seemed nonsensical. And I think everyone was like, oh, this is— the Biden administration, you know, torturing the numbers to try and, you know, talk down oil, et cetera. But no, what what you realize when you look back at the numbers from uh, summer 2020 was that the EIA based on its methodology was materially overestimating supply then. And that by the time you got to summer 2022, they were moderately under, uh, estimating, uh, underestimating demand. So you got this double compounded error that it was, you know, Uh, demand in 2022 summer was likely slightly weaker than 2021, but nowhere near as weak as 2022, uh, sorry, 2020. I think that's just one of those errors that I think people kind of ran with. And I saw like a hundred stories written about this. And I think it just comes from a a basic misappreciation for what the weekly data tells you and kind of what it doesn't.
3: So you kind of have a uh, level of confidence in the various data releases that come out and that informs your research. Absolutely. And I think that
0: just to kind of, and I I keep getting distracted as I'm going through these three buckets, but so you've got like, (laughs) it's
3: good.
0: good, I'm glad Um, the supply and demand data is lagged um, and is an estimate and will continue to be revised. And I think, so you've got the least uh, kind of confidence in that set of the data that said it also, at least on its face is the most comprehensive. Then you have inventory data. And that's where I actually, where I think that the weekly data, hold on on, comprehensive and
3: wrong. Basically,
0: I, I yeah, I think, but wrong in a useful way. And I think that is, I think that that's the important thing here is I think, um, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk in one second about why I think that is so useful, but let me just kind of get to these other two because I think they they inform kind of how I handicap that, uh, that, uh, that monthly and kind of supply and demand data. Um, because the the weekly data is much more accurate for the areas that we do have it. And I think that's where the weekly petroleum status report and the weekly uh, U.S. inventory numbers are very handy. That is, for the most part, survey data. That is kind of accurate, and you will see that it doesn't deviate materially from the monthly releases, like slightly here and there. But materially, that's the story. And I think if you have a scenario where your supply and demand balances imply massive inventory builds... But you're seeing material draws in, you know, observed inventories, then you probably know that your supply and demand estimates are probably off to a degree, or at least they might be. I think that's your first warning sign. The challenge with inventories is that while the U.S. is, you know, highly frequent with its entire inventory set nationally, um, the other, free, you know, high frequency weekly inventory data that we get from, let's say, ARA Europe, which is the kind of ports, or major ports around, you know, Amsterdam and Rotterdam. Um, and the kind of the data is from Singapore, it's a far, far smaller pool of oil that's being sampled. And you have much, much more unknowns. Like as an example, one of the big trends of this past year has been considerable building of Chinese inventories of both crude and refined products. And we have zero publicly accessible data on Chinese inventories. So that is the challenge here is that you know it's more certain but it's less comprehensive and i think that is where it, you know that's where i differ from the supply and demand data and then finally your final piece of data is market signals and i think at the end of the day that is the most you know the most quote unquote correct of you know is you know what are what are prices doing what what are what are calendar spreads doing what are what's what what is the shape of the curve doing if you have you know uh, let's say an oversupplied model and you have inventory builds, at least observably, but then you have, you know, deeply, deeply backwardated uh, kind of calendar spreads or, you know, a a, a deeply inverted curve or I guess downward sloping for backwardation, Um, that also gives you a signal of like, wow, this doesn't always line up. So I think what my method and my kind of approach to this is, you know, to take all of those pieces at the same time and try and make sense of them. And I think the reason, just coming back and defending the supply and demand balance kind of estimates is I think what people often do is they will just project forward from wherever they're standing right now, but they generally do not know where they are standing right now. And I know this because I don't know exactly where we're standing right now, and I try and I spend copious hours every day trying to figure it out. Uh, and I think that, you know, so, you know, if you look back at November and you say, like, this is where Chinese demand was, this is where OPEC supply was, this is where shale was producing, et cetera, it provides you kind of the most recent, reliable kind of like flag in the sand of where these major components of the supply-demand balance are. And I think if you assume that like, oh, in these, in the intervening months, the intervening period, you've had this massive change in balances, you need to figure out like which one of those segments shifted. Because I think that gives you a different approach. Like if it's, let's say, Brazilian production, let's say, dropped materially in one month. Well, that's not going to be a thing that continues on in the future going forward, that it's one facility that had a turnaround or whatever, and you know that's going to bounce back. So I think knowing the reasons for oversupply or undersupply on a lagged basis provides you insight and, again, parameterization of what kind of the major moving or risk variables are now and, in the, and into the future
3: before we leave the supply and demand uh, topic uh, i have one hypothesis i'd like you to confirm or deny it let's say there's a big dispersion in the supply and demand estimates from the various data vendors is there information baked in that is that an indicator of perhaps future volatility in the oil markets or is it signalless
0: i think it's important i think i think this is both true about Kind of historical and forward-looking estimates from these. From the, I think, I think in your context, I think you're mostly talking about kind of forward-looking, kind of the forecasts of of OPEC and IEA and EIA. But you can also get like Chinese demand is a great example here. All three of those agencies, none of them agree on what the level of Chinese demand was in Q4 of last year, um, which is important because when we're talking about one of the major variables this year being, um, you know, Chinese recovery and a return of Chinese demand. Well, where you were in Q4 last year or last year in total matters a lot in terms of what the potential kind of nominal barrel upside is. So to your point of like, but I also think that like various analysts like these different um, kind of estimates more or less than others. So if you have big dispersions, and right now for as an example, you have OPEC seeing growing deficits into next year, while EIA sees growing surpluses. I think that right there is, I think, a great example of like, well, they both can't be right. <laughs> and in, in in all likelihood, they're both kind of, they're likely both to be wrong and kind of probably meet somewhere in the middle. That, that, in my opinion, is usually what happens. When you see big, you know, OPEC is a great example, always assumes that like Q4 demand goes to the moon. <laughs> like every year you see their models and these massive Q4 deficits that are implied are always because of this massive Q4 demand number. And I think that you can just start to see these like patterns repeat themselves in the data and you just kind of start to like adjust for that. You're like, "Okay, well that's, you know, probably not." <laughs>
3: but that doesn't that point to seasonality at least um and don't these agencies factor seasonality into their uh, estimates or
0: they do, to different, I would say, to varying degrees. I also think there's, there's you know, each of the models that underpins, you know, IEA, EIA, and OPEC are all different as well. I think some of them are much more complex than others. Some of them are much more like headline, you know, regional GDP equals this many barrels. Some are trying to build it up from like a jet fuel, diesel, like an actual like end use model. So they all have different approaches. Um, I have the ones that I prefer, um, but I also think that like, you know, as an example, like IEA is great, but it's paid. And I think it's, you know, it, it's a reasonably steep uh, paywall for people that are just casually interested in the sector. I really like the EIA's STEO report or the Short-Term Energy Outlook because it's free. It's It's easily accessible. They've got a great data explorer on their website, and they have a fantastic API that allows you to pull all this data in. You know, like a tremendous amount of data, and each month you can you can pull from, so you can also see the changes in those forecasts. I think the other thing that's really interesting, I track the changes of all of these major agency forecasts month to month, so you can see kind of the the the, the like, like the tenor of like supply growth assumptions or whatever change over time. I think that is also really interesting.
3: So there's kind of an analogy in the equities world where analysts make earnings forecasts and they usually undershoot because it's not in their best interest to make a bold bet but the adjustments they make have potentially some content is that kind yes. of what you're saying i think that's exactly it. i think that's a great parallel good stuff now jumping a little bit i i've watched a few of your podcasts and one in one of them you said that you know technicals do matter in energy markets but eventually There's a kind of a tethering of price to fundamentals, ultimately. Um, And so prices will never stray that far away from fundamental value. Is there any way to quantify that or to at least expand upon that idea?
0: Yeah. So I think when you look at, so like when people are thinking about oil or like the price of oil, they're typically just thinking about Brent and WTI almost always. Um, you know, me me in Canada, you know, I, I have an over an overt fixation on Western Canadian Select, which is our main export grade. But what you can see is, you know, all of these different and there are hundreds of different kind of blends and export grades of crude globally, and all of them have what you call like physical differentials to these major benchmarks. So I think one of the things that is often levied against kind of the financial By sector, differentials
3: you mean sweetness, lightness.
0: Yeah, so so like so differential would be mostly referring to the price. And then the grades, you know, you have different reasons for the differential. So as a great example, just to kind of, you know, provide a little bit more, you know, content or context on this point, uh, Western Canadian Select is a heavy, sour blend of crude mixed with, you know, its it's diluted bitumen uh, shipped from Can- Canada's oil sands. It has a high sulfur content. It has a high cut of, you know, a high passive or, or, or natural cut of high sulfur fuel oil. Uh, But it's also trapped in Canada behind very frequently kind of insufficient pipeline infrastructure. So when you see differentials blow out on Western Canadian select crude, it can blow out for one of two major reasons. It can either blow out because—and by blowout, I mean, you know, normally the differential is like $13, $15 a barrel under WTI at Cushing. In 2018, that blew to $50 a (laughs) barrel— (laughs) <laughs> under WTI. So massive value loss for Canadian producers. And that was due to insufficient pipeline and egress for, you know, your inability to get it. So they were literally stranded barrels in Alberta that had to be discounted to such a huge extent to, to basically like cover, like almost like literally putting on a truck and driving it south. Like that was how bad the differentials were. This year, however, we also saw a differential blow to more than like $30, $35 a barrel. But there was very little, you know, to do with pipelines. It was mostly to do with these global quality issues. You had, you know, hugely discounted value for um, high sulfur fuel oil. I believe the the crack spread or the refining margin on high sulfur fuel oil was like negative forty dollars a barrel, and and basically, crudes that have a high natural cut of that need to reflect that value erosion in an end product.
3: I'm showing my ignorance here. I thought there was just basically one widely quoted crack spread. Uh, you're saying uh, there are multiple crack spreads for yes. multiple different oils. So, so the the most okay, widely quoted,
0: <laughs> the most widely quoted crack spread is known as the three two one crack, um, and that's basically it means it's it's the essential residual value of two barrels of gasoline and one barrel of diesel, you know, compared to three barrels of crude, and that is because you know for particularly North American and U.S. refiners that's a lot of what, what they you get. Yeah, um, but, you know, you, connect, you have a crack spread effectively for each individual end-use product. Um, and I think each crude grade or stream has natural yields of these different products, you know, given, let's say, a really simple refinery. And I think that gets worked back into the value of these crudes. So this year, you know, in particular, it's been very bad for WCS because it's been really bad for high sulfur fuel oil and NAFTA and a couple of these other end-use products.
3: Which is a bit worrisome, though, because if I'm a refiner in Alberta uh, and I hedge my risk by trading the crack spread on WTI, there's a huge mismatch there. There's a massive amount of basis risk absolutely. absolutely.
0: Um, and, and it's been a huge it's been a huge challenge. And I think a lot of, you know, um a lot of the Canadian majors are vertically integrated to a large extent. so they try and capture that by essentially, uh, you know, refining or upgrading the crude themselves. So, like, uh, you know, Canada exports WCS as diluted bitumen, but it also it also exports. Um, I should say, we also export uh, synthetic crude. So that's essentially upgraded crude that brings it up to a higher level uh, and essentially changes that chemical component.
3: Which brings me to the point: if price discrepancies are large for similar assets, similar commodities, globally should uh, oil companies in theory be more profitable because they have the infrastructure to arbitrage some of these differences in a way that uh, the average punter doesn't, you know, in other words, um, they can move commodities around, they can sell them into different markets. They have the transportation capacity. They have the refining capacity. All of these things is it would that be something that an equity investor would consider if they're large, potentially arbitrageable opportunities in, let's say, oil, then whoever trades in those or deals in that, in that business on a large scale should have an edge. Is that a reasonable rule of thumb?
0: I think that's I think that's very true. And I think what you've seen is like through weird markets like this, you've seen, you know, the large integrators perform very well. Now each of these, each company has different exposure to that kind of different elements of that, you know, crack spreader differential blowouts. The other ones that that benefit hugely in moments like this are you know the the large commodity trading firms, you know Glencore, Trafigura, et cetera, they have a tremendous amount of information about this market uh, from very granular. like they own pipelines and they own refineries. so they they'll know far more clearly, far more early than virtually anyone else in the market as to what's really going on. And they'll have a better view on that kind of granular level over time.
3: Why is it that we never see interviews of traders from Glencore? Or various trading <laughs> so companies. Was, and so I was so literally well, just on another podcast,
0: <laughs> and I suggested. So there's a really great book. I would say two really great books. Uh, the mo- more recent one is "The World for Sale" by Javier Blas and Jack Farchi. Uh, they're both Bloomberg reporters, and it essentially covers the world, the wild world of commodity trading, and that covers, you know. Oil predominantly, but all the other commodities as well. Um, you know, you know, uh, you know, grains and, and metals, etc. The other one that I, the, my first introduction to this, there's a book called, uh, you know, the God of Oil or the King of Oil. I can't remember exactly which which King, one it was. King, I think or it God might be the King of Oil. King of oil. Okay. Um, And that is essentially a book about Mark Rich. Um, and you the know, that is, <laughs> the, the legend of Mark Rich. And for those that aren't aware. Both Glencore and Trafigura are
3: the essential children. He founded them, didn't he? Yeah.
0: So, so yeah. So uh, Mark Richenko basically became Glencore, and uh, Trafigura was a was a split off of that. Some of the traders left and created their own firm. Uh, but fascinating, fascinating history, and what you can see. For Mark in the you know, the King of Oil and the Mark Rich story, in many ways, these traders and Mark Rich himself really created the spot market for crude oil. That historically, crude oil and the prices you saw weren't real things. They were essentially accounting metrics that you know uh, Exxon or Chevron or whoever would produce oil and then trade it within their own company, and the prices were essentially for tax purposes. Uh, and they were all, it was all very cozy. You had the Seven Sisters, et cetera. It wasn't until you had these residual leftover barrels that were outside of that system that traders could eventually kind of create liquidity in these spot markets. And that's what created and facilitated the growth of these, of of, of a much more vibrant ecosystem of price discovery for oil. And that's eventually what kind of got, you know, the, the the major integrates lost control of that. And what you're seeing now with other commodities, like let's say like like LNG, we're starting to see a gradual kind of move towards something similar, that historically there wasn't much spot price discovery in LNG because the there was so little liquidity, there were huge, um, basically all the cargos were long-term committed. But now that you've had such, just massive build out in infrastructure globally, you just naturally have like residual cargos that can begin to trade and create this like better, more informed view on what current spot dynamics are kind of telling you.
3: Very interesting. Um, So, Well, I I think the original question was about uh, fundamental tethering of oil prices to fundamental value. Yes. I got away from that and I apologize. No, no, that's (laughs) fine. I'm guessing that simply because they're real money or they're real users of oil. It's not like uh, various other markets where it's not a consumable good, it's just a security or something. Maybe that's the reason for the fundamental dependence over the long term.
0: So I think I think I'll stress two things here. The first thing to kind of support this point is that the physical people often talk in a lot of securities and oil in particular like the market will look through this, right? You know this is you know the, this is a known factor the market will look through it and address it. but that's I think a misnomer that at the end of the day, physical spot markets need to clear. so if no matter what your view, if, if supply is 10 million barrels a day over demand, let's say in April of 2020, yeah, the price is going to go towards zero. It has to. And essentially, it doesn't, and I think the important thing here is not necessarily the flat price that needs to go to zero or to go to negative. But what you need to do is you need to dramatically widen the contango in the market in order to facilitate and finance, pay for increasingly scarce inventory space. And I think in distressed markets like you saw in 2020 and 2016 before that, in February 2016, um, you essentially saw the emergence of super contango, which essentially is the the structure where you have like the spot price is at a $20 discount to, let's say, crude for delivery a year from now. And in my mind, in moments of extreme crisis like that, that reflects to a degree the cost curve of inventory, storage costs, that you know, essentially as more and more of the easy, cheap inventory. Like normally we're talking like 20, 30 cents a month for inventory leasing. Like it's usually pretty cheap. Um, So Contango doesn't need to be that wide for someone to have a very attractive arbitrage where they can say, I'm going to store this. I'm going to insure it. I'm going to finance it. And as long as those costs are less than the Contango, I'm literally printing money. That's how the commodity market clears in moments of oversupply. But in super Contango, you've run out of all those easy opportunities for storage. So that's when you get these like, Super tanker trades where like a commodity trader or a major oil company will literally lease super tankers and store one or two million do- you know barrels of crude in a tanker and just float it off the coast for like six and months. And keep it out then, there. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's just and it's floating storage. So that definitely that's definitely true. I think the the other side of this, however, is that I think. Physical traders, so like often what you'll see, like if a market's just trending sideways, let's say, like let's say for two months, three months, the price hasn't really moved at all, right? Um, but you see widening differentials one way or the other at the physical level. Let's say, let's say Saudi crude keeps becoming more and more expensive relative to that benchmark. Those kind of benchmarks that you see trading sideways, that is a sign. I believe uh, that, that you know, the market, the physical market's telling you that the financial market is underpricing these commodities relative to end users. But in moments like last year where you saw a very rapid rise and a lot of physical traders were saying, look, these differentials are not screaming kind of crisis levels. This price is running away. This is all speculation, et cetera. But even if let's say you were at like a weak kind of differential uh, or let's say a weak discount for these crudes, but that discount was staying relatively flat at that, you know, weakish level, but oil gained $40 a barrel. That doesn't mean that the market's weak. It just means that the financial market was a couple of weeks ahead of the physical market. And I think that's actually exactly the point of what financial markets are for. It's it's for it's for allowing a huge amount of information to be transmitted into price discovery very quickly. Often faster than the physical realities manifest, because this is all about forward-looking anticipation, et cetera, et cetera. So I think both of those things can be true, that you can have, you know, real physical kind of signals and value. And I think it's always important to look at both sides of this, but I think that both can kind of tug and pull at different moments in different ways.
3: Yeah, I mean, I've always sort of thought of things from the leverage standpoint in the the sense that, um, say, a trend follower, why do markets trend? They trend because, if you have a position on and it's on side, the market's moving in your direction, you have more margin to play with. So you can build your position even more. And so markets overshoot as a function of um, the growth in speculative profits in the direction of the move. I didn't phrase it that well, but th- 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 what you're saying is that there is an underpinning here that sort of eventually will overwhelm. The speculative stuff that's going on. Exactly. So and I think, yeah. Is the upshot that if I do look at commitment of traders reports and things, and if I do figure out how to understand them and figure out who's a spec and who's a hedger and so on, it might help me, but only over a shorter term horizon? Is I that believe kind that's of what true. you're saying.
0: Yes, I believe that's true. I think that, so like I, in my weekly, Oil Context Weekly, what I cover kind of five main things every single week, one of which is the commitments of traders report. And the reason I see it as valuable, and, and to your point about kind of hedgers and and kind of spec and non-spec, I typically just use the disaggregated numbers um, and use the the managed money component, which I find to be the most volatile and I think like the most capricious in this way. And I think the reason that, you know, to your point, I see it as useful. I don't think it's necessarily useful for forecasting, but I think it's useful like tactical risk management that if you see- So positioning,
3: over-positioning.
0: Yeah, Exactly. And, I, and, and you know, so and I look at it both in terms of nominal barrels and in terms of like a, as a share of total open interest in the contracts. So as an example, you know, back in, you know, November or back in, um, you know, even very recently, you saw spec interest in these contracts reach very high levels of total open interest relative to its recent history. And I And I always kind of normalize it to, let's say, like the last year of whatever the norm is. And I think you see deviations, but it it tends to mean revert. And I think the I always think about spec in this capacity as like the most flighty, the most capricious holders of this crude that are holding it for entirely non-commercial reasons. So if they're really, really bullish, you know, all they could get slightly more bullish. It's not. It's not likely they get materially more bullish from there. The next most likely outcome is that they mean revert. They take profits. They sell back down. Someone gets spooked, and they and they start establishing new shorts or whatever. I think that's actually what we've seen.
3: I hate to speak like an academic here, but you're saying when the (laughs) final marginal buyer has been tapped out,
0: absolutely, and and that's and that's what I view them at.
3: I, I view them as marginal
0: buyers, and I think that's the the exact perfect word for this. That you have the normal structural price formation that's going on in the market. And then these players kind of get on and they, they, can, they can either just take flat price exposure or they can take like steepener or kind of flattening trades in the curve, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the, like the, to your point that like if, you know, your, if your marginal buyers are really overextended, it's not likely that you're going to have much incremental marginal buying. But if your marginal buyers are really, really short, you have a lot of dry powder on the side of the market that is typically associated with oil investments. So I think, yeah. you know, you, you yeah, see that exactly. typically come back in. I think that's a fairly reliable kind of metric. And I think it's, again, it's not causal, but I think if you have a really high net spec as a percentage of OI, you know, you have a higher risk of these major kind of downside moves. And I think when you're really, really short, you have a risk of these major upside moves. And I think that's kind of how I how I approach
3: the, the COT report. That makes a lot of sense. Next question is... Uh, Oil is priced in dollars generally in global markets, so isn't oil isn't the oil price really just a play on the dollar?
0: <laughs> it definitely can. True or be. untrue? I, I, I think like if you look at it like on a like I one of the charts I have on my um like on the Bloomberg kind of terminal up 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 to the side of me here is you know basically just Brent and then an inverted DXY, and I think it provides you a good sniff test of like if crude spiked one direction and the dollar spiked in the other direction, you can say, okay, that might be because of like, you know, a risk trade that, you know, people are flooding to the dollar and then, and I think that's the important thing. You have both denomination effects and you have kind of inverted kind of risk-off, risk-on trajectories as well. That, you know, when people flood into the dollar, it's often because they're, you know, worried about growth or whatever. And then at the same time, people will de-risk oil. So I think that's a good way of like just sanity checking yourself.
3: So if I go to this, March 2020... Let's say the dollar, dollar rallied hard, oil dropped hard, even harder. Uh, How do I know what percentage of that or what the loading was on the dollar vis-a-vis just a collapse in demand?
0: Yeah, so I would say, I, I wrote a piece on this, actually. You know, I called it Dollar Wrecking Barrel, uh, which I thought was a fun <laughs> nice, play on that. very nice, very nice. <laughs> and, um, and it was essentially about this. So, like, so this whole thing that we've been talking about, typically they move inversely, you know, inverted to one another. But for the majority of 2020, or sorry, 2022, the dollar rallied at the same time that oil was rallying. And I think what you saw in that moment was this concern in flight to, qui- uh, this flight to kind of quality, flight to dollars, because of a ground war in Europe that also had a major oil element. So I think at certain moments they can trend together, you know, positively correlated when the risk is something specifically related to the oil market. But to your question about like can you can you extract like these specific denomination effects? I've tried in a couple different ways. I think the most most effective way of doing it or the most kind of (laughs) feel, I was going to say theoretically, but I almost said theologically. Theologically sound is essentially the way this is really going to manifest at the end of the day is affordability of oil and oil products. That the majority of the world that consumes oil does not earn money in dollars, but the commodity is priced in dollars. So when you see, let's say, a major devaluation relative of the Ramimbi or you know, uh, you know, the euro or whatever, it's proportionally more expensive for those consumers to consume oil. So you would assume that all else equal oil would adjust gradually around that. And I essentially create like a a consumption weighted currency index. And you can kind of, you know, extract how much of that was based on denomination effects alone versus flows effects. And I think both of those can play in. Uh, That said, I think, very frankly, I don't think that the, I think the denomination effect on a kind of a grad, like a, let's say a month's long time frame, I think is a useful framing. But I think day to day, it's probably not that useful. I think it's probably an overcomplication of a, you know, relationship that like dollar goes up, oil goes down.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I was going to come to that. So if I picked a horizon, let's say a month, and I break the, the scenarios up into four, oil up, dollar up, oil up, dollar down, oil down, dollar up, and both down. The, the where you are, which quadrant you're in should tell you something about the state of the world. Is that a fair at least on a retrospective basis? Yeah,
0: I definitely think that's fair. And I think that like if you let let's say in, in like a month or even a given a week that like let's say doll you know, so like oil prices rose by ten bucks and you know, DXY was up five percent, then yeah, it's actually an even better week for crude because on a dollar adjusted basis, well, crude's done even better. Uh, So I think, you know, that I think is it's again, it's it's a I'm going to keep coming back to context. I think it's important to it's important to kind of ground yourself in why you think these things are happening together, because I think that informs a bit of your view of like, well, is that going to persist? Is some of this going to unwind? Which side is going to unwind? I think it just gives you a bit of like tactical awareness of the space. I think a lot of people just passively kind of consume this data. And I think it's always important to kind of critically kind of assess why those things are happening together.
3: Now, let me throw another monkey wrench in the works here, which is that if I understand correctly, the Fed model for inflation uses oil as a major input. It assumes that perhaps oil prices are transitory or mean rever- highly mean reverting. But if they become sticky, suddenly all bets are off, sticky and high. And you can expect, at least if they follow the model, tightening. So is there this complex interaction between uh, short rates, oil price levels and stickiness and um, the dollar? Is this some kind of strange brew that one has to consider? Do you consider that stuff or is it uh, slightly outside of your boundary, let's say?
0: Um, I definitely think, I mean, particularly in moments like this, like no one, no one could ignore monetary policy. Um, I would not consider myself like a like a, like a well-vetted... Fed watcher. But I think what we interestingly saw last year, I think historically you've seen the Fed kind of really focus on like these, you know, core and core inflation drivers, kind of structural uh, moves, you know, in in prices and would, I think, in some ways actually fade to just like temporary energy or food effects. Uh, But what you saw a lot of commentary around last year was this overwhelming concern with headline inflation and this idea and this risk of an unmooring of consumer inflation expectations. And I think for that reason, you saw Fed officials, you know, continually cite not just oil, but specifically pump prices. And I the think the other, the other thing that was going on last year and why everyone was, I think, particularly losing their mind over gas prices was not only did you have oil at 120, you had gasoline crack spreads, which normally are at about 15 bucks a barrel. Uh, gasoline crack spreads were at 60 plus dollars a barrel. So you weren't paying $120 the pump. You were paying 180. And I think it was that double whammy. So the Fed became overly fascinated and overly fixated on oil prices. And I do think for a little while there, at least, when prices were that high, they, they were going to keep hiking until prices came down. Now, thankfully, they did come down. Uh, so that wasn't the kind of driving thrust anymore. But I do think that you know, and I say this often, like you know, now you hear there's like an egg, there's an egg crisis stateside, right? Like you know these, you know, all of these prices and whatever, you know, skyrocketing. But I still guarantee you that people are not as aware of the price of eggs as they are the price of gas because it's literally the only thing, and it's and it's literally everywhere. You see, you see the price everywhere. So I think for if you're the Fed and you're and you're concerned, and I think. I think there are legitimate debates over the kind of usefulness of inflation expectations uh, in kind of inflation modeling. But we know that the Fed takes that very, very seriously. And if your concern is an unmoor of inflation expectations and you're worried about what consumers are seeing and kind of feeling, then, yeah, gas prices are going to be literally top of that list. Uh, so I think, you know, for them... Both oil prices came down by, you know, 40% or so from that level. But thankfully, gasoline crack spreads went from $60 a barrel to almost flat, almost zero uh, in the U.S., and I think negative in some areas of the world uh, by later that year. So I think, you know, that helped take a huge amount of pressure off of kind of monetary policy authorities and this kind of concern of inflation expectations.
3: Now, speaking of spreads, I would have thought naively that, oil and natural gas should have some relationship because drillers have a choice, at least to some extent, what they're going to drill for. And um, why has Nat Gas gotten hit so hard relative to oil? Other than the oil sands argument, the structural argument, is there anything else behind all of this?
0: My one caveat here is I do not cover nat gas nearly as closely as I do crude markets and, product, and refined product markets. But I think as an overarching thesis here, I think there's two things that you should consider at once. Um, one, the North American gas market is very, very structurally different from the rest of the world's gas market, a natural gas market, I should say. Um, in a lot of areas of the world, and this is true for a lot of LNG shippers and even like pipe gas from, um, from Russia, is a lot of that was actually explicitly indexed to oil prices because, in many cases, uh, producers were actually typically not targeting gas specifically; they were actually targeting oil, at least historically. What you see in North America is much more of a decoupling of those markets and a lot more kind of gas on gas competition in terms of pricing. So, my I think in North America, as I mean, they you've seen that they have fallen. I think. Similarly, over the last, you know, let's say over the past six months, it's been a kind of a bad month, a bad six month period for both crude and natural gas. But I think that the way I think about it is not so much in current in terms of like demand competition, because there isn't much like there isn't there aren't many moments where you actually have a lot of substitutability between oil and natural gas but at the producer level i actually think that you know when you talk people always talk about like break evens or like the cost of production for a us producer they talk about it in oil terms so like it's you know it's a 60 dollar break even or a 70 dollar break even or whatever but the important thing to remember is that many of these producers produce like a 50-50 gas oil split so the higher the price of gas steady state assumption the lower your effective break even for oil is so what we've seen now when the price went from nearly $10 a million BTU for Henry Hub, down to, we are currently at $263, as I'm looking on the screen right now, which is not a great price for gas, let me tell you. But that kind of 75% reduction in the value of gas inflates all else equal the break-even price of oil that these producers need in order to actually have profitable oil production. So that's the main way I look at it, is I look at gas and how it affects the oil market. Um, The other thing that you see is that uh, natural gas is a very material input, both for heat, power, and for the production of hydrogen uh, in refineries. So what you see as well, and one of the reasons that you saw quality differentials, I was talking about this earlier with you know heavy blends of crude, et cetera, when the quality differentials blew out, they often require hydrogen to kind of continually break down into more and more valuable products. And if your cost of hydrogen, because of the cost of natural gas, is skyrocketed, either it's because it's like $10 Henry Hub or, you know, truly astronomical levels in Europe, well, that's completely eroding your refining margins. So when you look at the crack spread, crack spreads are a screen, you know, a simple product-on-product, but they're not taking into account the underlying refining costs, which have also exploded. Um, So you actually, that's why that challenge also comes in, particularly for you know an area like Europe that had astronomical gas prices and astronomical power prices, and refineries are both gas and power highly intensive. So that also erodes those those crack spreads. So you you know those effective refining margins. Um, so that's a challenge that like sometimes the crack spread on the screen will tell you one thing, but the reality on the ground is very
3: different because maybe there's a mm. reason that those crack spreads have blown out to that degree. Um, fertilizer isn't it- Nat gas relevant for fertilizer production? Yeah, absolutely. Is there a disconnect between farming pressures structurally and nat gas prices in your view? Or is it uh, something that is, there's so many different factors, one can hardly isolate one?
0: Um, I'm not not an agriculture market kind of expert by any means. Um, I do think that like It obviously hurts, uh, you know, hurts profits. I think you saw a lot of that both in 2021 and 20, sorry, yeah, 2021 and 2022. What what year are we in now? Um, But the, um, so I think that was a topic of discussion. But the other thing I think in many ways that's hurt farmers, you know, as much, if not more in some cases, is while I mentioned the gasoline crack spreads were at $60 and came back down to basically zero. Diesel crack spreads, which is the main kind of fuel that underpins farm equipment, kind of industrial machinery writ large, those crack spreads, you know, they're actually down materially, and right now in New York Harbor, they're, they're sitting at about forty-five dollars a barrel. That hit almost seventy dollars a barrel, which again, normal fifteen bucks. So these are huge kind of cost cost uh, burdens for producers that um, you know consume diesel in in large quantities. I've I said earlier that I think one of the best personal trades I've ever made was in 2021, uh, we switched a diesel car for a gasoline car. Not based on any personal kind of professional view, just because that was what available with what we were looking at. But it ended up being one of the best trades I've ever made because, oh my gosh, the diesel prices have been painful.
3: Very interesting. Now... I'm worried because we've gone over an hour, and I I don't know what Niels is going to say, but I'm going to say we should do around two one of these days as well. Um, if you're available. always happy to join, but is there anything you'd like to say in conclusion? I know we've covered a bunch of topics. I didn't make as many contentious statements as I'd hoped, but we can always <laughs> do that next
0: time. I'm sorry. <laughs> is there My anything you'd like? Apologies as always. No,
3: it's not your. It's more me. Uh, but is there anything you want to tell the audience about? what they can look for from you going forward or what you're focused on now and on the research side?
0: Yeah. So on the research side right now, so I was mentioning, obviously, a lot of my focus has been on the supply demand, kind of this lagged model. Um, The big thing I'm working on right now is essentially now casting that model. So bringing that from two months lagged to as close to present as I possibly can get. And then from there, I'm looking to actually begin forecasting. I don't actually have official forecasts right now because I think it's I think my value add is more on this kind of decompositional historical work.
3: Uh, but is right it now out I'm costing working... statistical work or is it? Uh...
0: I, it's partially statistical, partially kind of alternative data. So right now I'm working on jet fuel and kind of using a variety of the different uh, data providers out there that provide real-time kind of flight activity and trying to kind of relate that to jet fuel demand. And I think that goes in and then from there it goes on to, you know, Fuel oil and shipping demand, and then you go into, you know, gasoline and diesel work, etc. And I think that is that's gonna be my way of beginning to, um, beginning to kind of work that through.
3: Excellent. Well, I, I look forward to that bit. I mean, that that's long overdue. I've seen inflation and GDP now, Gus, but I haven't seen an energy one. So, um,
2: with that, I will hand it back to Niels. Thank you so much, Harry and Rory, for a conversation full of energy and some really good insights. There were quite a few things that really stood out to me in this conversation and I just want to mention a few and probably do it in reverse order. And I think the impact of net gas on the refining industry was quite fascinating as well as Rory's comments to the relationship between oil and the US dollar and how changes in correlation can tell us something about how the world is doing. Also, I really appreciated Roy's reminding us of the price discovery process within commodities and how that can lead to some unimaginable price moves like what we saw in oil in May of 2020. Of course, Roy's book recommendations were great, and I think both books are in my ultimate guide to the best investment books that you can grab a free copy of on the TTU website. And I'm sure you can tell that we believe that energy and commodities in general are super important and critical to understand, and we will do our very best to bring you more great content in this area of finance. Make sure you go and follow Rory's and Harry's work, because as you can tell from today's conversation, there are many exciting facets to learn from those who have been in the trenches for many years, and we really look forward to exploring many more of them as our series continues. From Harry and me, thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to being back with you on the next episode. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other.
1: Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released.